Welcome to Coaching Leaders, the podcast that is dedicated to helping managers become better coaches. Today's episode is powered by One Minute Feedback. If you face challenges with receiving feedback that is helpful and encouraging, then you will want to try One Minute Feedback. One Minute Feedback's cloud-based feedback survey helps you get supportive feedback from your colleagues and external partners. The feedback you receive using One Minute Feedback is unique in that it helps you understand what you should keep doing and highlight areas of your courage to grow. Hi. My name is Raf, and I'm the host of Coaching Leaders Podcast. My goal is to help every manager become a better coaching leader so you can enjoy a successful career and happier life. In today's episode, we are going to discuss how understanding better our cognitive biases will help you become a better coach, but also a better person. My today's guest is an author of an incredible book that I have learned so much from about our cognitive biases. She's also a public speaker and neuroscience geek. Ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, Melissa Hughes. Hi, Melissa. Thank you very much for joining me in today, and I'm really excited about this episode. Now, what I would like to start this conversation with is with sharing some positive feedback for you. I have subscribed to your newsletter, and I have to say, hands on heart, this is the best newsletter that I have subscribed to. Now, I have subscribed to many, I have also unsubscribed from most of them, but yours every week brings something fresh, something very tangible and something I can learn from and apply in my life, not just a professional life, personal life as well. So thank you very much for putting it all together, being so consistent and delivering such a great value every Friday. Thank you. That just made my day. You just gave me a huge dopamine rush. So... (laughs) You're welcome, Melissa. You absolutely deserve that feedback. Now, I know that you like to call yourself a neuroscience geek. I also read your book. But before that, I know also that you've been a teacher. Would you share with us the story behind teacher ending up a neuroscience geek and written a book about neuroscience? Yes, so it's it's actually um, a fun story. So I started my career in a fourth grade classroom and I taught at the university level after the elementary level. So I taught little kids and big kids before I left the classroom. But at my first year teaching, I sat down with my mentor and we did a post-mortem on, you know, what worked well, what didn't work well, um, what did I want to learn over the summer so that I could come back and be a better teacher in the fall. And I had this kind of epiphanous moment that You know, I realized I could never really be the most effective teacher possible if I didn't understand how kids' brains learn. So that year was the first year I taught in Ohio, and that was the first year for the Ohio proficiency test. And it was our first look at high-stakes testing. It's become normal for kids in education now, but then it was a really big deal. And we spent a whole lot of time stressing kids out over that test. So we talked about test-taking skills and we told them how they had to get a good night's sleep and they had to have great breakfast and you know take deep breaths. And we taught them all of the strategies so that they could just do an amazing job on this test. And by the time it was time to take the test, everybody was fried with stress, everybody. So the kids were fried, parents were fried, we were fried and It would have been really helpful for me to know that stress like that does not increase cognitive capacity. In fact, when we're that stressed, it actually, or any kind of stress really that goes above 
and beyond just, you know, may, we have a certain amount of stress that we have to have in our days just to stay alive. But stress like that actually activates the fear threat center. And when the fear threat center is activated, the prefrontal cortex or the part of the brain right behind your forehead, which is the last part of the brain to develop, is put on pause. And the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that handles decision-making, weighing risks and rewards and consequences, impulse control, problem-solving, organization and planning. So that's the part of the brain that we want our kids to hang out in. That's the part of the brain that we'd like to hang out in. But when we're stressed, when we're in a constant state of stress, that part of the brain is actually put on pause. And the reason for that is this is one of our ancestral hand-me-downs. And we put that part of the brain on pause so that we can allocate all of our neural resources to deal with the threat. And in caveman days, it could have been a saber-toothed tiger or poison berries or an enemy caveman. We don't have those things today, but we certainly have lots of sources of stress that do exactly the same thing as the caveman, the saber-toothed tiger, the poison berries. So when I left the classroom, what I realized is that people need to know those factors that either impede or enhance cognitive function even after we leave our fourth grade classrooms. In fact, it becomes more important for us to know what those things are that prevent us from being our best thinkers and doing our very best work. Because in the classroom, when I told kids, go in there and do your very best work on that, on that assignment, from a neuroscience perspective, it's literally and chemically impossible for them to do their very best work when their brain is pumping out norepinephrine and cortisol and and engaging the fear threat center. And the same applies to us as adults. How I got here, long story. You're absolutely right, Melissa. We can't just tell ourselves to focus and to be that way. Here's a quick example. As we started recording this episode, I have completely forgotten one word and I couldn't I couldn't bring it forth and use it. Very simple. Why? Because I didn't have a good night's sleep. So although I'm not stressed right now, I didn't have a good night's sleep. And so my cognitive functions are not at its best. It's the same when we are actually stressed. Let's say, for example, we are stepping up on the stage to deliver a speech. We have prepared for it. We've created the slides. We've written the speech. We've rehearsed it several times at home. And it all was perfect. We're walking onto the stage and then whoosh, we forgot what to say. The very first slide, the very first few minutes that we rehearsed so many times and now it's all gone. Blank mind. And we can't just order ourselves to remember it. What happens is cortisol shoot up, the stress hormone, and our cognitive functions are diminished. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting that you would... Uh, share with me that you didn't sleep well last night because one of the things that I have learned along the way, and we used to do this as students, I'm sure you did this as a student, when you had a really big test the next day, you would stay up all night and study and cram. And sometimes as adults, we do that if we have a really big, important presentation to give, we stay up preparing, or maybe we're just so stressed about it that we can't get a good night's sleep. So, So here's what happens when you don't get a good night's sleep. There are, there are cells in the brain called glial cells. And glial is actually the word, literally is the Greek word for glue. 
And glial cells actually are the cells that let all of those neurons in our brain talk to each other. So during the day, our brain is working the way it should. It's because the glial cells are letting all of those neural connections happen. So the neural cells actually work on a use it or lose it principle. So those cells that we don't use, uh, the glial cells actually mark those cells with a protein because if we haven't used, so you learned about the War of 1812 when you were 13 years old, and maybe you haven't thought about the War of 1812 for 30 years. There probably aren't too many cells that are dedicated to that specific piece of content in your brain, and that's because somewhere along the line, glial cells have marked those branches in your brain and said, not using this one, get rid of it. So they prune those neural cells away. And then when we go to sleep, what happens is the interstitial spaces in our brain actually expand. And so then the night crew of the glial cells come through, I I call them the housekeepers. They come through and they sweep out all of the neurotoxins and all of those dead cells that we killed with stress throughout the day and all of those cells that have been marked with a protein that we're not using. What happens if you don't get a good night's sleep, those glial cells don't get to do their job. So we wake up in the morning and the cleaning hasn't been done. The housekeepers didn't come. The housekeepers didn't clean out all of those neurotoxins and dead cells. And so those mornings when you wake up and you just feel foggy, and you just feel like maybe, you know, you're not as sharp as you'd like to be. Nine out of 10 times, it's because your glial cells didn't have the chance to do their night job. So when I talk to people and they say, well, you know, what's the best way to make your brain work best? And there's like, should I do crossword puzzles or should I learn a new language or should I listen to classical music? And my number one answer is always make sure you get good sound sleep every single night. That's the best way to keep your brain working. I wish that somebody would explain that to me years ago when I first was promoted into management position. After a few years of being driven and being focused on my personal development and delivering the results, I became a little bit complacent. And at some point, I started playing video games a little bit more. And so what I did to quote unquote, not compromising family time is I would work full time, come back home, spend the time with my family and I play throughout the night, sometimes till two, three, four o'clock in the morning and I go back to work next day. Now, I have to also admit, ego played a role, so I couldn't see and I didn't see the impact that it had on me, lack of focus, the mistakes that I was starting making at that time. And it cost me dearly. I have hit rock bottom because of that. I couldn't admit it was because of video games. Uh, I was a little bit too pride, I suppose. But eventually I realized that was it, lack of sleep. So from that point onwards, and when I realized it, I started to prioritize my sleep. And so what I've learned is that my sleeping sweet spot is seven and a half hours long. But I also learned something very interesting. Throughout the day, there are moments where I'm not as sharp. And so what I've learned is that actually we are going through peak trough and recovery throughout the day. And my trough falls in between 2.30 p.m. and 5 p.m. roughly. That's when I'm not sharp. That's when I'm not fresh. So possibly... The fact that I couldn't remember the word today is because we are recording this episode and it's 4 p.m. UK time. 
Today I know that understanding how our brain operates and paying attention to it can boost your performance significantly, right? Absolutely. And if you think about it's interesting that you brought up, you know, that 2.33 o'clock in the afternoon time frame. So typically many people hit a wall like in the middle of the afternoon and they all they want to do is curl up under their desk and take a little nap. Like I've been there too. And it has less to do with what you've eaten that day or stressed you are that day with your work or how much coffee you've had. And most people, when they hit that wall, they go, oh, I must need coffee. I need caffeine or I need sugar. So they'll hit the vending machine or we'll go get a cup of coffee. But really what's happening in your brain, specifically at about between two and three o'clock in the afternoon, is your neurochemistry is changing. So cortisol actually spikes, just a normal cortisol production spikes in the morning. So when you get about an hour after you've gotten out of bed, that's the height of your typical cortisol production. I'm not talking about the hair on fire days. I'm not talking about the days where you, you know, you're, you're losing it. I'm just talking about normally our production of cortisol spikes about an hour after we get out of bed. And then it, it slowly declines throughout the day. And when cortisol is high, melatonin is low. And you know, melatonin is that thing that helps us go to sleep. So when cortisol is high, melatonin is low. Well, as our cortisol levels decline, our melatonin levels start to increase. So on a typical day, the valley of your cortisol is around two, three o'clock in the afternoon. So what right. happens to your melatonin then? That's the, that's the chemical that says it's time to go to bed. So the way to trick your brain, to get your brain to think, no, it's not time to go to bed, is go out in the sunshine, go out in the daylight, take a 15-minute walk somewhere, because it really has less to do with your day and more to do with your brain. And when you understand, oh, my brain, my melatonin levels are raising now, so now I need to do something to tell melatonin, not time yet, it's just not time yet, because the melatonin it works on the opposite schedule as the cortisol. And so by eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night, your melatonin is way up. And that is why when we're able to get a normal, decent night's sleep, it's because cortisol is low and melatonin is high. And then in the morning, it's reversed. It's fascinating how much we can learn from neuroscience and what we can apply in our daily routine, in our personal lives and professional lives. So as I was reading your book, The Happier Hour with Einstein, I've learned a lot about cognitive biases and I would like our audience, our listeners also to learn more about them because here's what we do know. They are existing, they are active 24-7 and if we are not aware about them, they have a potential to create a lot of harm in our personal lives, in how we're coming across with other people, how we lead them, how we're building relationships with people, but also decisions that we are making within the businesses and they can be very costly as well. So where do we start, Melissa? Can we actually take the control over those cognitive biases or we just have to live with them? More than 90% of our thought processes happen in our, in our subconscious. So more than 90% of what's going on up here, we aren't even aware of. And biases happen like that, but there are also shortcuts. They're mental shortcuts because our brain simply cannot keep up with everything that's going on up there. So it takes shortcuts and it tries to do things in the most efficient manner possible. So I'll give you an example. 
the anchor bias is one that is very common in uh, marketing. So we use, if I'm selling you a product and I'm explaining what the product is and I say, and typically the price of this widget is $19.95, but for you, I'm going to give it to you today for $15.95. Well, I've set the anchor at $19.95. So now anything, any price that I give you next or after that initial price is going to be weighed against that anchor price. We also do that. So, so now $15.99 sounds pretty good because now you're weighing it against $19.99. But we also do that with constructs. So imagine you're the leader of a team and you're all sitting around a conference room and you're trying to decide what the price point of the product should be. And as the leader, you say, well, I don't know. I looked at all of the things on the market and the typical price point is $19.99. You've now set that as the anchor. Instead of saying to your team, what research have we done that gives, that informs the decision that we're going to make today? And maybe the other products on the market, that might be a data point in that research, but leaders often set that anchor. And because you're the leader, that anchor carries much more weight than someone else throwing out a number. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense, Melissa. But that's just one of the cognitive biases that we know today about. Another one that I'm really working hard to be conscious at all times, and I've learned about it from your book, is a confirmation bias. So let's look at that particular one from the perspective of a manager. So for example, if I have, through my behavior, allowed my employees to label me as a manager who is not reliable or not fair, then the way I understand it, they will scan and search subconsciously for every evidence to support their current belief. Do I get this right? That's exactly how it works. You got it exactly right. So the brain looks for evidence to prove that which it, that which it believes to be true. The brain hates to be wrong. We'd love to be right. So if I believe that today is going to be a terrible day, if I get up in the morning and I believe today is going to be a terrible day, I just know this is going to be a terrible day. I'm going to look for every piece of evidence that I can find to support that which I believe to be true. So it's raining. It's, that's another reason why it's a terrible day. I can't, the traffic is terrible. That's another reason it's a terrible day. My boss didn't say hi to me. Another reason why it's a terrible day. So are all of those things, did we make all of those things happen because we got up in the morning and thought it was going to be a terrible day? No, those things happened anyways. But what it does is it skews our perspective of everything that's happening. And it makes us notice all of the negative things so much more than the positive thing. In a business setting, confirmation bias happens all the time. So let's say I come to you and I say, look, I got the best idea for a new product. And here's the product. This, these are the features and benefits. And this is why I think it's the most amazing idea. And you say to me, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't you go do some more research on that? Because I think it's an amazing idea. And because confirmation bias is happening without my knowledge at all, I am going to go look for evidence to prove it's the best idea while I discount any evidence to the contrary. So I may come across evidence that says, 
you know what? This company came up with that same product two years ago and it didn't work. And these are the reasons why it didn't work. And I'm going to completely dismiss that information because confirmation bias says, I'm going to search out evidence to prove what I believe to be true. And it's really costly. It's very costly in business. Yes, I can see how it costs money, but also it costs us relationships. I wish I could say that I have never labeled someone quickly or formed a negative opinion based on a snapshot judgment. But unfortunately I have, and I think we all did, and we all do all the time due to our nature. But let's just look at it from the perspective of the manager. So if me as a manager, I have quote unquote labeled you as lazy, then my brain would subconsciously scan for evidence towards it. So if I see you standing around for a few minutes and doing nothing, I would go, yep, that's it. I knew he's lazy and here's the evidence towards it. And so my behavior now reflects my beliefs. If I think that you're lazy, if I think that you don't care about your job, then I won't do my best to coach and develop you. I won't be paying attention to what you're doing and my feedback will reflect it. And so now our relationship suffers because I have felt into the trap of confirmation bias and I go with it. That's exactly, exactly true. Now, there's another bias that is a first cousin of confirmation bias, and it's called the horns and halo effect. And horns and halo is similar to confirmation bias, but horns and halo says, if I like you, if I think you're a funny guy, and we have great conversations in the break room or after work or before work, then I'm also going to think that you're a good employee because you've got that halo in this characteristic and I'm going to take that that positive characteristic over here and I'm going to apply it to other things that are not even related. And it works with the horns effect too. If I don't like your car that you drive or I don't like the football game that you or the football team that you follow or I don't like your political affiliation. Let's say I don't align with you politically. Well then I, the horns and halo effect says I'm much more likely to dismiss your work ideas, the, the, the ideas that you share in the work setting or you know anything that you offer up in the, to the team. I'm going to dismiss that, much more likely to dismiss it because I don't like your political beliefs. It's fascinating and we do it all the time. You know, there's um, another bias that's similar to that is called the people like me bias or the affinity bias. And, and it is... Just that you and I are having a conversation and you like this particular football team and I like this particular football team. And we have a nice little conversation about the last football game. And then we go into a conference room and we're discuss we're brainstorming for a, a particular project. Well, whatever idea you throw out, I am much more likely to support your idea because we just had a conversation about this football team that we both like. It has nothing to do with the idea, but it happens all the time. And what you'll find is when people start to understand these biases, the really cool part is they'll start to identify them. They'll see them happen in real life. And I, I do it myself. I'll be engaging in a conversation with somebody and I'll think, oh, that was the optimism bias. That was the negativity bias. Like it happens. We can't stop ourselves from happening from it happening because they're mental shortcuts and they often happen in our subconscious. But what we can do is understand them and then identify it when it happens so that we can back up and say, well, was that confirmation bias? I mean, is it, 
did I really work hard enough to find evidence that might disprove this idea or disprove that belief? And when we can stop ourselves, then now that's when growth happens. We can't make the biases go away, but we can address them when they happen. Yes. And let me share with you one of the biggest life lessons that I have learned. It is related to cognitive biases. Prior to my awareness about the fact that they do exist and how they influence me as a person, I was, I was going tough on myself and I thought that I'm being very judgmental and I would spend a lot of time and energy trying to prevent myself from having those thoughts. When I've learned more about the biases, I've realized that I'm looking at it from a completely wrong angle. Now, this is totally my opinion and my assumption and what I've learned, but the lesson was this. It wasn't that I was judgmental. It's not that I am judgmental because I have those thoughts. I believe we all have them. Being judgmental to me means you follow through with those thoughts. You're allowing them to influence what you think, how you feel, and how you're coming across and how you communicate. That's what it means to me being judgmental. Just the fact that I have created a quick conclusion or belief about you based on your appearance, behavior, religion even, it's how we are wired. And what we can do as an adult and should do is to decide whether we follow through with those thoughts or not. Now, Melissa, that's my current belief, my current knowledge, and what I do based on what I have learned. I would love to hear your thoughts, whether I'm right, I'm wrong, or could you maybe elaborate based on what I just told you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, I, I get excited when I recognize that I've just I'll say, I'll use the word committed. I've just committed a bias because here's what I know. They're happening whether I acknowledge them or not. And so when I do acknowledge them, to me, that's a victory. I, that's a big win because now I can go, whoa, let me take a step back, especially if I'm making an important decision. You know, there's a thing out there called decision fatigue. And what we know, they've done all kinds of studies and they've taken a look at how effectively people make decisions. And does the time of the number of decisions you make in the course of the day affect how effective your decision making process is? And talking to leaders, leaders make lots of decisions. And there's lots of studies now that say if you're going to make an important decision, don't make it in the afternoon. Don't make an important decision in the afternoon because especially if you've made 10 or 12 or 15 decisions before that, there's, we make far more decisions than we realize. We make simple things from what to wear that day to what to eat for breakfast to, you know, what route to take to work. We make decisions all the time and we don't even think about them as being decisions, but they were, there was a study done by parole boards. They looked at parole boards, parole board decisions for one year. And those people that had their parole board hearings for the exact same offenses. So they, you know, they looked at people who had nonviolent offenses with the same number of years and they were, had served the same approximate number of years. So really evened out the, the score when they were looking at uh, the folks who were looking for parole and they found you know, that uh, 70% of the people who were saw the parole board afternoon were denied parole for the exact same offenses as those people who were given parole in the morning. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. And did those parole board members go in there 
you know, into those meetings and say, I'm going to not, I'm going to deny everyone that appears before me in the afternoon. No, it happens. It just happens without our awareness. And so I, to me, understanding when that happens is a big victory because then I can put a, you know, put a pin in that and say, you know, I'm going to step back from that. I'm going to, I'm going to look at this from a different perspective. So you had that folks. If you are going to ask for a pay rise or you're going for a job interview, make sure it happens early afternoon rather than late afternoon. You are giving yourself a better chance at succeeding, right? <laughs> and earlier in the week rather than later in the week. There's, you know, there's all kinds of studies out there as to not just time of day, but also, you know, within the context of the work week. Because think about how many work decisions, just work, not even personal decisions. Think about how many work decisions you make from Monday to Friday. It's crazy. By the time you get to Friday, there's a reason why we're emotionally exhausted. And a lot of that has to do with the number of decisions that we make, especially if they're, if they're really important decisions. Wow. It is exciting, but it's also, like you mentioned, it is fun to recognize them in the real time and do something with them. Now, there's one more thing that I am aware about today, but I wasn't before I read your book. Before that, and actually still, I believe that I am better than average person. I tend to rate myself better than average. And so if we take this concept into a feedback conversation, we are facing a real challenge because from the get-go, I'm going to meet resistance. My challenging feedback, my negative feedback, will immediately clash with your self-assessment that is biased because you believe that you're better than average, you are overestimating your current skills and capabilities, and now you're hearing my feedback that, it, that tells you that you are not as good as you thought you are, and so your social status now is being threatened, in your opinion, and you respond to it accordingly. You got it absolutely right. We're the, it's called the better than average effect. And we all think that, so uh, when asked a thousand people, how many of you think you're better than average drivers? 90% of them will say, yes, I'm better than average drivers. Well, mathematically, we know that simply can't be the case, right? But we all think that we're better than we are. There's um, a very interesting study done by two researchers named Dunning and Kruger, and the effect is called Dunning and Kruger effect. And what it's similar to the better than average effect, but Dunning and Kruger found that the people who know the least think they know the most, and the people who know the most realize, think that everybody knows as much as they do, so they think it's just what they know is uh, not a big deal. And so it kind of works like a people that are in the middle who say, I know enough to know that I don't know enough, if that makes sense. I know yes. enough to know that I don't know enough. Um, the, the history of the Dunning-Kruger effect is just fascinating. There was, a, there was a guy who robbed a bank and he put lemon juice on his face. And he thought if he put lemon juice on his face, he would be invisible to the bank tellers. And so he walked into the bank with lemon juice on his face and no mask and he tried to rob the bank, thinking that no one would see him because he was he put disappearing ink on his face. Now, he knew enough about disappearing ink to know that you can't see it until you use a reagent. But he didn't, you know, his, his uh, idea that he knew enough about that, that he could actually go rob a bank, 
That's a very extreme example, but the Dunning-Kruger effect is out there everywhere. And people don't know what they don't know until they know enough to know they don't know enough. So that's really critical piece of information for every manager out there. When your employee is responding defensively to the feedback, it's not entirely and only because they don't care, they don't want to listen, and they think you're wrong and they're the best. It's because we are wired that way. We all tend to think about ourselves that we are a little bit better than we actually are. So now it's your responsibility as the manager to prepare for that conversation and whenever possible, offer an evidence to support your feedback, not basing it just on your opinion, your gut feeling, or using your formal authority to convince another person that you're right just because you're the manager. And so that's from receiving perspective. From coaching perspective, as you mentioned, there is another challenge. And this is something that I personally struggle with a lot. Just because something is common sense to me doesn't mean it is common sense to everyone else. And so oftentimes I felt guilty of putting certain information on my slides during my training, during my feedback workshops. And I was wondering and I was actually concerned that people will see it as a common sense, as not valuable and useful to them. What I failed often to recognize is that this is something that I have dedicated myself towards, something that I study and I decided to make it my profession. I believe it's also called a curse knowledge. It's as if you would assume that everyone around the globe knows just as much about cognitive biases as you, Melissa. But we know that's not true, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. You know, there's something else at play here, a bias called the negativity bias in that we are much more likely to recall negative incidents with greater intensity and in more detail than positive incidents. And that also goes for feedback that we get from our boss or our coworkers. We, there was a study done by a lady named Marie Dasboro, and she explored the concept of emotional contagion on feedback. So she did this predicated on this fact that we're much more likely to recall negative incidents than positive ones. And that's an ancestral hand-me-down as well. That's what has enabled us to stay alive. So we pay attention to danger. We pay attention to the saber-toothed tiger. We're on the lookout for all of those things that can hurt us. It's the happy things in life can't kill us. So we don't pay so much attention to those things. So that we got from our ancestors. But Dasbro applied that in terms of emotional contagion and this idea that we catch the emotions of the people around us. And uh, she looked at two groups of employees and one group received negative feedback or critical feedback delivered with very positive emotional signals like smiles and nods and very pleasant tones. And the other group was given positive feedback but it was delivered with uh, very negative or critical facial expressions, harsh tones of voice. And the people who received positive feedback that was delivered with negative social cues felt worse about the performance than the people who got negative feedback delivered with smiles and nods and pleasant tones. So the delivery was much more important than the message, but it all is connected to this negativity bias and that we pay so much more attention to the negative than we do the positive. Now, this is such a reoccurring theme. 
Even this morning, I have delivered a feedback session and one of the leaders, the most senior leader in fact, said that he has been part of the environment for many years when all he got and received is negative feedback, challenging feedback. And so now all he does pretty much is sharing negative feedback only. He's not really good and consistent with providing positive feedback. If we combine the two, being part of the environment where positive feedback doesn't happen, that conditions you in a certain way, that is telling you that's the way we run the business. And then if we add this negativity bias, our tendency to focus more and paying premium attention on what's negative, on those negative experiences, what we are ending up with is working environments when positive feedback is rare and challenging feedback is constant which creates then the feeling that in here people only pointing out the mistakes and never recognize me as an individual as a human being yeah it and and i think to that leader what i would say is people want critical feedback people want the kind of feedback that they need to improve i believe people really want that and the research shows that people want that and the reason for that is uh when your boss takes the time, sits down to you and says, listen, this thing that you did, this is why it didn't work. This is how you could do it better. You know, gives you some constructive feedback to improve uh, your own skills and your own performance. The underlying message is that I believe in you enough. I, I believe in your potential enough to take this time to show you how you can improve. The negative feedback that is to the boss that says, I'm always on the lookout for negative feedback. Well, the negative things that happen. Well, to some extent, leaders have to do that because they're always looking for the orange cones, you know, because they're responsible when things go south. But it's the delivery. It's the manner in which we deliver this information to people that really matters the most. Because if we can deliver that criticism, if we can say, this is what you did wrong in a way that says, this is what you did wrong and I care enough about you and your contributions are so valuable to the team that I want you to do it better next time or I want you to develop this skill so that you don't make that mistake. That's the key. It's the delivery of the message, much less than the message. So in Dasbro's research, that even the people that got really positive feedback that was delivered in a negative way, they dismissed that positive feedback because they latched on to the negative. The negative feedback that was delivered in a very positive way, that was more well-received. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And in the words of Kim Scott, we have to challenge people directly and personally care for them. Because as you've mentioned, we all want to contribute. We all want to belong and we all need to grow. And we all understand in order to do that, we need more challenging, more negative feedback in our life. We all need it and managers should focus on how it's being delivered. And what's really important to understand for every manager out there is that me as a person and everyone would constantly read your intention, trying to understand what your intention is. And we're picking up those social cues 24 seven all the time, right? We call it a gut feeling about someone. And so if I perceived your intention as negative and keyword here, it's perceived intention. Not what you intend to do is how I see it. And I would judge it through your tone of the voice, timing, etc. 
then if I perceive that your intention is negative towards me, hostile towards me perhaps, then I will respond accordingly. So a good example of that would be if you decide to deliver a very challenging feedback, valid feedback, feedback that will help me, but you've timed it wrongly and you've challenged me in front of everyone else, what I will focus is not on the feedback itself, but on your intention. I would feel like you are against me, not with me. And so learning is no longer the priority here. Keeping myself safe is now the priority because my social status is really important to me and I'm in a position, a situation when somebody else threatens it. So that will occupy my mind, my focus, my response, everything. You know, absolutely. And you, you talk about threat, a threat to our social status. So uh, there's, oh gosh, a wealth of research out there on this construct of psychological safety. And if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, physical safety, our basic needs, and then our physical safety, and then our sense of belonging is that third level. Well, we cannot feel a sense of belonging to the group. We cannot feel like we belong to the organization or that we can make contributions to the organization if we do not have a sense of psychological safety. The biggest threat to psychological safety is that our social status has been diminished with among yes. our peers. So the best way to demotivate someone is to attack their social status. By the way, the brain processes those threats to social status, that psychological safety issue, the brain processes it the same way it does a physical threat. So the brain doesn't know the difference between being attacked by a lion and being cut down in front of your peers. The brain processes it exactly the same way. Yes, because historically, exclusion from the tribe resulted with our death. So belonging equals safety. Exclusion equals that. Here's how I always explain how important social status it is to us. I suppose you own a Louis Vuitton bag. My question to you is, why would you pay a thousand pound for a bag? Certainly not because of its quality. And companies like Louis Vuitton are well aware about this evolutionary glitch. The fact that we treasure our social status so much that we would do a lot to boost it. Because it feels great to walk into the room with Louis Vuitton bag because it's a signal of your social status. It means wealth. Not everyone can afford a bag for £1,000. Not everyone can have the latest version of your iPhone, right? That means, or it feels like, our social status is being leveraged, which is hugely important to us as a human beings. Absolutely. Oh, gosh. We could do an entire session on psychological safety. It's so important. But if you think of, I have done work where I have aligned Maslow's hierarchy of needs with employee engagement and how invested they are in the organizational culture, you know, in that psychological and physiological needs that are being met, food, water, oxygen, sleep, shelter, even homeostasis, the body, bodily functions that just keep us alive. That's on the very bottom. But then above that is this idea of psychological safety. And that comes, that part of that is our personal security, our resources, our health, our, our salary, enough money to pay the bills. But a big part of that is how we are perceived by our peers. 
because we are wired to connect with others. And acceptance is one of our deepest human needs. And rejection is one of our deepest human fears. Psychological safety is huge in terms of, you know, everything, culture, engagement, performance, the whole bit. Melissa, I am really curious to learn who was the best coach-like leader, mentor-like leader that you ever worked with. Well, this one is pretty easy. I, I worked for a publishing company after I left the classroom for 10 years. And I was, I, I loved my job. I was the brand evangelist. I loved what I did. And I started in research and development and I climbed up to the director of marketing communications. But in the middle there, I worked for a division that was dissolved and uh, they dissolved the entire division. They let everyone go except for me. And they brought me back to corporate and I'm sure they didn't know what to do with me exactly, but they gave me to the CEO and um, said, here, yeah, I was cleaning up the, the kind of residual of, of the division that was dissolved, but I also got to start some new projects on, in a very different vein. But, but I ended up reporting to the CEO and it was the best thing that could have happened to me because he didn't know much about me. Uh, he got to learn very quickly that if I, the more autonomy he gave me, the more I wanted to prove to him that he did not make an, a mistake in that. And I always wanted to exceed his expectations. But along the way, he, I think the best thing about that learning experience for me was he gave me opportunities to learn things that he knew I didn't know. And so in doing that, there was no expectation for me to walk in with these skills already intact, with this knowledge already intact. So exposed me to things like strategic planning and forecasting and things that I had not yet been exposed to at that time in my career. And he brought me to the table and he just let me learn. And then the expectation was now take that learning and apply it to what you're doing next. And I think the part of that that was just so valuable for me was that uh, we both knew that I didn't know how to do some of this stuff. I had never been exposed to some of these processes. So just kind of putting that out there first. And, and I, I didn't have to pretend that I knew something that I didn't know. I didn't have to be nervous that he would find out that I didn't know what I was doing because we both knew that I didn't know and that the whole point was that I would learn. And so that took all of the pressure off spending time and energy, making it look like something that it wasn't. And it allowed me to spend more time and energy on the learning process itself. And for that, I think I will always be grateful to him. And I will say that I have never had anyone since be quite as effective of a mentor as he just simply because of the right way, just simply because of the expectations. The expectation was for me to learn, not to know already. And I think that's a, I think that's a real powerful way to empower people because he really did empower me to learn. Now I'm envy Melissa. I would love to work for him. So what's his name? <laughs> his name is Roger Pisaki. And now he is, uh, he is the C. EO of a, a company called Playcore, but he, he was just an amazing a leader. And in my life, he was an amazing mentor. Wow. That's a coaching leader at its best. 
it looks like he really understands what does it take to be a good coach. First is to create that safe space, safe environment when you are not afraid to ask questions. You're not afraid that you'll be judged because you don't know something. And then creating opportunities to practice those relevant skills to get better. So create safety to ask questions and then create a practice field, if you will, to train and develop certain skill sets. Amazing. Yeah. And I think one other thing that just adds to all of that is talk about relieving the pressure for me to pretend that I knew things that I didn't know. Um, In addition to that is as I was learning along the way, I never felt afraid to go into him and ask him a question. I never felt there was no fear that my questions would be stupid or that he would think, well, she should already know that by now. There was, there was never that fear. And so just the freedom to ask questions and to build on that learning just, you know, made it exponentially better because what happened then was I got really engaged in the learning process. And as we know, the more we learn, the more questions we ask, the more we know, the more we want to know. And that's what happened to me. The more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. And I did that because I was free to ask him anything. I asked him questions about thing I learned yesterday or that thing I want to know about maybe tomorrow. And, and it was just a constant learning cycle. And so I think, you know, to your listeners out there who are striving to hone their own leadership skills, providing that environment where people not only have opportunities to learn, but also have opportunities to ask questions and nurture that learning uh, within themselves. That's huge. That's empowering to people and to the organization. What a way to wrap up the episode. To put it simply, there was no fear from you that your social status will be diminished as a result of asking questions. Exactly. Thank you very much, Melissa, for today and for sharing so much wisdom with us. I really appreciate that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to drop the link where listeners can subscribe to your news newsletter. And I promise you guys, you won't regret it. Now, I know I might be biased because I really like it. But once you subscribe, you will see what I mean. So the link will be in the description. And where else our listeners can get in touch with you, learn more from you and connect with you? So I have, I am a very prolific blogger and blogger. So the video nuggets that I send out every Friday, they are three to five minute video nuggets. I respect the inbox. I do not share email addresses with anyone. I'm very, very selfish that way. But I also don't junk up your inbox with things that you don't ask for because that would just be rude. And I blog about a lot of things. So you can sign up for the Neuro Nugget and find my blog, my past nuggets, um, my past blog articles on my website, which is melissahughes.rocks. Fantastic. I truly appreciate you, Melissa. Thank you very much for today and uh, have a great day on purpose. Thank you.